Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I am excited to talk with Dr. George Grant today. Dr. Grant, how you doing? I'm wonderful, wonderful. So good to speak with you and uh, to be able to talk about all of the things that we're going to discuss today. Really important stuff. Yes, indeed. Why don't we pray? We'll go ahead and ask for the Lord's help and we'll trust that he gives it. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the blood of Christ that unites Dr. Grant and myself as brothers. I thank you for the conversation that we're going to have. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lead it and, and guide the, the conversation and the talking points. And I pray that you'd, as always, just point us to Jesus and help us to think through. There's a lot of things going on right now in our country, in our world, and help us to look back and to remember uh, all that you've done in our country. And then, Lord Jesus, help us to be present where we are, to see what needs to be done, what we can do as citizens of this, this country. And then uh, as ministers of the gospel, what we can do uh, to stay focused on the work of Christ and, and proclaiming that work. And then what we need to do as we move forward. And so lead us and guide us. I trust you're going to, uh, it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, well, Dr. Grant, for those who may not know you or may not be, be familiar with, with your work, would you go ahead and bring us up to speed? Tell us about yourself, your family, and then what it is that you do. Well, I am a pastor in Franklin, Tennessee of a uh, PCA uh, Church, Presbyterian Church in America, uh, which we planted about uh, 15 years ago. And uh, we're uh, now three congregations uh, that we, we have uh, planted. We intend to continue to plant churches. And I actually am the pastor of the second one. Uh, we did kind of a reverse church plant where my assistant stayed and wow. I went uh, to Pioneer. So it's been a grand adventure, and uh, over the years, I've done a lot of other things. I've uh, been in the publishing world. I've written a lot of books, and uh, I'm particularly focused and have been for the last 20 years on overseas missions. We have a classical Christian school here in Franklin that we uh, started 28 years ago, and um, because of that work and because of my commitment there, we've been planting schools around the U.S. And uh, more uh, recently, over the last 20 years, uh, in the Muslim world, wow. so we have uh, a number of classical Christian schools in northern Iraq, in Indonesia, in Egypt. And uh, so that, that's, uh, that's wow. a great passion of mine. And I am married. Uh, we've celebrated 45 years of marriage, my wife, Karen, and I. And um, we have uh, three adult children, six grandchildren. Wow. Uh, the, the grandchildren are all boys. And so it's, uh, it's rambunctious around here when we get everybody together. I bet. And uh, our, our youngest son does not yet have children, so we're rooting for girls. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, that is so wonderful. God's, God's definitely had his hand on you and your family. We've got two sons. We're on the front end of this. We got a six-year-old and a two-year-old boy, and we've got a little girl on the way. 
Oh, so congratulations. We're, thank you very much. We're very excited and, and very much having fun on the front end of having, having little children. But my parents and my in-laws have really been loving grandparent life. And I've yet to meet a grandparent who doesn't say that as great as parenting is, you just wait. Grandparenting is even better. And it, it is so true. Everyone says that. And, uh, you know, there, there are joys in every season of life. I think as we get older, we, we begin to cherish those seasons a little more. And that, that may create a bit of that bias. Uh, right. There, there's hands the children back when, uh, you know, things get out of hand. So Yeah, there's a wisdom that comes with walking with the Lord where you're able to savor and enjoy the yes. gifts that you have in, in ways that are intentionally slower, I think, than Amen. when you're younger. And um, so that's good. Okay, now tell me, I'm, I'm very intrigued. How in the world did you get into plant, or starting classical Christian schools in high Muslim population countries. How in the world did that happen? Well, I've always been very interested in uh, Islam and uh, missions in the Islamic world. Okay. Given the long history of Christian failure in, in that region. And so I, I was actually uh, studying this when I was an undergraduate. And then I I began a graduate degree in Middle Eastern oil politics at the University wow. of Houston when I was there. Uh, so I've always had an interest and I have been involved in missions and missions trips since the earliest days of my ministry. I have been uh, back before the fall of communism behind the Iron Curtain. And so th there, th it's always been a great passion of mine. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was really classical Christian education that, that opened the door. A pastor in northern Iraq somehow stumbled across some cassette tapes wow. of some of my classes. And he decided, I, I need this for my children. And so through some missionary connections, he was able to get a full set of a year of my history lectures. And... Uh, started homeschooling his children, but about halfway through the the first quarter of doing that, he began to feel guilty and realized this isn't just what my children need. <laughs> this is what my nation needs. This yeah, is what the, our people need. And so uh, through a whole series of strange connections, we were able to meet up and sitting in a bagel shop in Nashville, Tennessee, we hatched this plan of uh, what, what I had long-termed a wedge strategy for missions. Uh, the idea is find a place where you, you've got uh, persecuted people, mm -hmm. uh, persecuted by their supposed allies and peers. Find that people and, and, and target them, minister to them because they will have an openness. Uh, to the gospel. And so uh, we thought maybe, maybe the Kurdish people in Northern Iraq would be the, the wedge right. that would enable us to get in uh, to the Middle East. And sure enough, it's, it's taken off. And we have three very, very large classical Christian schools uh, in the cities of Dehuk, Erbil, and Sulaymaniyah. Uh, more than 3,000 uh, students now at the, at the schools. Wow. And uh, we have uh, now 
uh, fledgling efforts in, among the Yazidi people in some of the refugee camps. And uh, that then opened up the doors for other places. And we have 27 schools in Indonesia. You know, we've got a couple of schools in the Philippines. It's just, you know, the Lord is just uh, taking it. And so none of it was strategy. None of it was our prescient wisdom. It was just God opening the doors. Wow, that's amazing. Our daughter's name is going to be Providence. We're going to call her Pravi. And goodness gracious, that story is such, I mean, a clear picture of the providence of God connecting dots and a tape collection. What's the story of that tape collection? You know, how did it end up being in the hands of a pastor in northern Iraq or Iraq and in him connecting and then you guys getting together in Franklin, Tennessee? How in the world? (laughs) Yeah, other than the providence of God, there is no possible explanation for remarkable. that. Remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Well, we are. We read a couple of years ago, Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning, by Douglas Wilson's book on, on uh, I believe it was this first one in, by the Crossway series that came out in the early 90s, and right. that led us down the road of watching a documentary on classical Christian schools that you were a part of. And we, we saw you talking about the school in Franklin and it was a, not a documentary, but a film, small film or a series of small films that you're a part of. And so that's where we were first exposed to you talking about uh, classical education. But I have a friend that is a friend of my father's and I had mentioned to him, he was talking about Dr. George Grant. I said, you know, Dr. Grant, I heard him preach at a post-millennialism conference a couple of years ago and I'm actually gonna be interviewing him. And he got all giddy, excited talking about reading your stuff from the early 80s and 90s and your work uh, talking about uh, Planned Parenthood and, and your work for in the pro-life movement and I just was very excited so you've been doing ministry and wearing a lot of hats for many years would you take us all the way back to the beginning about when it was you became a Christian and then what was the path into before we get into these other topics what was your path into ministry by way of your internal and external call it's, uh, again, another story of God's providence. I was not raised in a Christian home. I had no real background in the faith, had never read the Bible. Uh, I uh, stumbled into an evangelistic uh, meeting primarily because I was interested in a young lady uh, in, in high school, and I thought that this might be a good thing to take her to as at our high school football stadium. And it's amazing, by the way, to interject a thought, how many guys have similar stories. They were interested in a lady and ended up meeting Jesus somehow. (laughs) Right. Right. So I, um, I I heard the gospel for the very first time. I I had had some seeds planted. I, I remember as child being profoundly affected by viewing the film *The Robe* on television, and uh, but and our family went to church, you know, Christmas and Easter kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my mother went to a Presbyterian church uh, where the pastor was an agnostic and the assistant pastor uh, was wow. Marxist atheist. Uh, my father went to Roman Catholic uh, church, hmm. you know, off and on, but you know, n- nothing uh, there substantial other than there is an awareness of faith there. Right. And so I uh, was just 
I was bowled over by the claims of the gospel, instantly knew that it was true, and frightfully made my way down, prayed the sinner's prayer, and mm-hmm. was handed the gospel of John and some follow-up materials. And then that was it. Okay. So I go home. I read through the gospel of John that night. Wow. Was convinced that I needed a Bible. So the next day, uh, I, at the time... I was living in the garage apartment of my coach. Uh, I had left home when I was 15. Oh, wow. So I, um, on my way to swim practice, I was a, I was a competitive swimmer. Uh, On my way to swim practice, I stopped by a little bookstore that I knew about. I'd seen it before, Christian bookstore. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, walked in, went straight to the sale table, being uh, cheap, poor, and a student. Mm-hmm. Uh, found a Bible, and uh, I picked up three other books. I bought them based on price and cover. Uh, one was the, the Soul Winner by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, the other was The Reformed Pastor by Richard wow. Baxter. Well, Providence, and there third again. was a, a very large uh, commentary on the Book of Judges from the Geneva commentary series, um, all banner of truth publications. They were all on the sale table because it was a little Pentecostal bookstore and somebody had ordered banner of truth stuff accidentally. <laughs> yeah. So they were trying to get rid of it. They were horrified when I walked up to the counter to buy this stuff, but uh, I, I went ahead and bought it. And that was really my beginning. I was never discipled by a living person. I was discipled by Spurgeon and Baxter and mm. Charles Hodge. And um, I consumed everything that I could about uh, and by Spurgeon. And I consumed everything that I could. Somehow I stumbled across Oswald Chambers. And okay. Oswald Chambers was a, another huge early influence. And I read everything, not just my utmost, but, but everything I could find of mm. his. And so uh, because of Christian literature crusade and banner of truth, I became interested in the British evangelicals. Mm-hmm. So I, Howard Marshall, and F.F. Bruce, and John R.W. Stott, J.I. Packer, those guys mm-hmm. were my disciples. In wow. The early- oh, that's remarkable. And so then fast forward a little bit, tell us about your call into ministry and how you knew this is what God's calling me to do internally. And then did you have, eventually, if you didn't have people discipling you, who was it that came around you to be able to fan that into flame and lay hands and say, you're, this, you're God's man. This is what you've called you to, what the Lord's called you to, and we affirm this in you as well. Well, I have always had great doubts about my suitability for ministry. Always. Hey, join the club. Join the club. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, but I've also always had a compulsion to uh, study the Bible and share what I'm reading. So mm-hmm. um, already in high school, I was hosting prayer meetings just because I was excited. And um, because I hosted them, I wound up leading them. I right. didn't know how to lead and I didn't know what I was doing, but there I was. Uh, in 1972, I um, got connected with uh, Campus Crusade. Uh, guys. And uh, I lived in Texas, in Dallas, Texas. And in 1973, there was this huge, huge 
uh, Campus Crusade event in Dallas called Explo 73, hmm. where Billy Graham and Johnny Cash and Bill Bright and, you know, Chris Christopherson and Andre Crouch, <laughs> all of these kind of stars of the hmm. early 70s evangelical world gathered. Uh, and in the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, thousands upon thousands of young disciples uh, were trained in how to share the gospel. Okay. So I just uh, found myself sharing the gospel and loving this stuff, reading it uh, thoroughly. I never thought about myself as being in ministry. I was just doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, those were the early days of the Jesus movement. And I uh, was involved in evangelistic efforts to uh, bring the gospel to cults like uh, the Moonies, okay. uh, Sun Moon, Moon, and um, they they had a big event in the Astrodome in Houston uh, called Millennium Seventy Three, and so I was there with all of the kind of the Jesus uh, freaks handing out literature and, nice. and so early on I was in ministry but didn't know it was ministry. I just thought it was just the Christian life. Yeah, this is what you do. I started uh, in my dorm room at the University of Houston. I started uh, Bible studies and I just did it because it's what you do. Mm -hmm. I didn't really realize that I was leading until uh, one of the local um, campus ministries elected me their vice president. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing whatsoever about theology or I just knew what I was discovering in the word and my zeal for Christ and my desire to reach people who were lost. And yeah. Um, so gradually people just started saying, you know, you need to talk to George. He's, he's, uh, you know, he's in ministry and he does this, that, and the other thing. And it was, it was a, a striking missions conference at the local church that uh, my uh, not yet wife and I were attending that uh, they actually issued an altar call for those who felt like they were called into ministry. So well, I went forward and I said, I, I want you to know that I'm, I'm going to go into politics. I want to I want to be a congressional aide or something like that. I don't want to run for office, but I, I want to be involved in politics. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to be a pastor, but I feel like uh, vocationally, my real call is to be a witness for Christ yeah. in, the, in the realm of politics. So that was my call to ministry. Nice. Uh, and I feel a little bit like Augustine or uh, John Chrysostom every once in a while, some group of people come with chains and bind me to a wagon and drag me off and say, now you're our pastor. <laughs> and you uh, just go along. Okay, God. Okay. Yeah. Uh, wh whatever you will here. Um, fantastic. Well, okay. At some point, if you're in the Jesus movement, I'm sure Hal Lindsey's book, and we'll get into some eschatology here for a little bit. Um, the la last great planet earth or whatever the title of that, uh, late great planet earth late great planet earth i read a book a couple years ago on the G god's forever people on the jesus movement it came out it was a, a book that chronicles i mean just tells the story of what god did in the jesus movement and some of the crazy stuff that happened that in the name of god during that time but 
Um, you at some point became post-millennial. And then if you already had this desire for politics, we can get into um, some of the things that happen when you become a post-millennial. Um, but what, eschatology, what was your eschatological development when you became a Christian, you're, you're telling people about Jesus, you're being dragged into ministry opportunities and positions, and I'm sure you're studying along the way. So what was your path towards post-millennialism? Well, when I became a Christian, everyone that I knew was a dispensational premillennialist. I became a Christian in Dallas, Texas, where Dallas Theological Seminary had a tremendous influence. Mm -hmm. The first church that I went to after I was converted was a Dallas seminary guided local church called Believer's uh, Chapel. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but what was interesting was Believer's Chapel, the, 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 the pastors, S. Lewis Johnson and uh, later Haddon Robinson and, and so, some others, were, were all sort of uh, leaned reformed, okay. you know, slightly so, soteriologically Calvinistic. Okay. And so um, I felt really comfortable there with all of my Spurgeon stuff. Mm -hmm. But th there was no other eschatological position mm -hmm. on the horizon at all, except dispensational uh, premillennialism. Mm -hmm. uh, I was introduced to Hal Lindsey in 1970 with Late Great Planet Earth. Uh, by 1972, I was reading The Terminal Generation. Uh, 1973, I read his commentary on the book of Revelation. That was uh, the, the world that I lived in, and it all made a tremendous amount of sense. Uh, the Vietnam War was still on. Uh, the Middle East was uh, wrecked with uh, uh, wars and and invasions and uh, terrorism. Uh, the, the environmentalists were telling us that the planet wouldn't survive another 10 years. Hmm. Uh, you know, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring had already come out and shaken the world and we'd had our first Earth Day. And so it, it just made sense. But I couldn't reconcile it with the Bible. Hmm. I kept reading all of these things about God's uh, providence and his sovereignty and his purposefulness. And I would run across these passages like, you know, the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Uh, there's, there's all of this hope. And I couldn't reconcile it with all of this very, very apocalyptic language. Hmm. And, and then as I began to study church history, I started to realize, wow, there have always been apocalypticists and they've always been wrong. Hmm. Yeah. So that began this sort of journey. Um, I was aware uh, because I was reading Banner of Truth books of ah, millennialism. Mm -hmm. I, I started to become aware of that. Uh, and the, the only thing I knew about post-millennialism is that World War I and World War II had completely discredited it. Right. And uh, therefore, it, it was not even to be, you know, seriously considered. Which is what some people are saying about the year 2020, by the way. Well, as and what and it's interesting as postmillennialism can as that I can tell is growing very rapidly right now. Uh, it seems to be, anyways. But anyways, all right. Back back to your story. Yeah, I mean, but apocalypticism is always narrowed by the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Right. 
uh, everyone was an apocalypticist in the 14th century with the Black Death, the Hundred Years' War, the Hanseatic League, the uh, Babylonian captivity of the church. You know, I mean, who wouldn't be an apocalypticist in the 14th century yeah. unless you're reading your Bible? And that's the thing that kept uh, causing me to come back to God is sovereign. He's making all of the nations of the earth his footstool. Uh, the nations of the earth shall be subdued. I started to look at, at the so-called apocalyptic passages, and I'm going, I'm, I'm not sure that it says what it says. And I go back and read the book of Ezekiel, and I realize, oh, the Battle of Armageddon never actually happened. Hmm. And so, you know, it's... it's um, you know, one of those things where my worldview was uh, being dramatically challenged mm -hmm. by my Bible reading. Yeah. Eventually, I was able to stumble across uh, Marsilius Kick, and uh, that opened the door for a new understanding of how you could have an optimistic eschatology. Yeah. Uh, working out the details of the eschaton, uh, whether I'm actually an optimistic on-mill, as some would say, or if I'm just post-mill, I'm not, I'm not sure that those labels are all that helpful. Uh, what I do know is that uh, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Mm -hmm. uh, his purposes shall not fail. His reign is forever and ever and his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and it shall not pass away. Amen. Amen. That's so good. All right. So would you, for the sake of listeners, and some of these things go together, and, and then hopefully we'll be able to connect all these dots here. So post-millennialism drives, when somebody embraces that eschatology, you look around and you realize, wait a minute, Jesus is Lord here. Uh, and one of the first things that begins to crumble is, is two-kingdom theology. And would you quickly kind of for, for our listeners, for the sake of our listeners who are thinking through eschatology and there's so much conversation, Jeff Durbin has, has risen in popularity and talking about eschatology in, in a lot of the uh, reform circles, at least on the internet. And there's this conversations in the forefront with 2020 where everybody locally in our area is asking questions about eschatology. It's just very, it's a very popular thing to talk about right now. Um, could, could you explain quickly, um, what is two kingdom theology? And then what does it mean that Jesus is Lord of the earth right now in our city, this moment, he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and people need to recognize that. Yeah. You know, Abraham Kuyper famously said in his inaugural uh, address for the uh, free university of Amsterdam uh, that um, you know, th there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say mine. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the beginning place, I think, for uh, a lot of people in, in wrestling with two-kingdom theology. A another place where people begin to wrestle is every time we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, mm -hmm. just as it is in heaven. What two-kingdom theology essentially argues 
is that there is a kingdom of this world, and then there is the spiritual kingdom of Christ. Um, and as, uh, as people who are living on the earth right now, who are also Christians, we, we therefore kind of have a dual citizenship. Mm -hmm. uh, the realm of nature is not to be expected to function uh, and look like the realm of grace. So the primary job of Christians is to, um, to in the tension of these two kingdoms, uh, we should focus on the church. Uh, and, and we should focus on the church being the church, the locus of, of grace in the world, uh, led by its duly ordained officers and ministering through the ordinary means of grace. And all of that sounds really, really good. It's, a, it's an idea that was propounded as early as 1518 by Martin Luther in a little pamphlet entitled Two Kinds of Righteousness. He was drawing ideas, although I would argue wrongly, from Augustine's The City of God. And the idea is sort of what Francis Schaeffer describes as the upper story, lower story. Mm -hmm. um, as Christians, we're to focus on that upper story, the realm of the spiritual. And uh, while we can be good citizens and we can be involved in good things in this world, we're not to equate the work in, say, a social reform, the work in neighborhood redevelopment, the work in justice. We're not to equate that with kingdom work, mm -hmm. the, with the spiritual work. What, uh, what I see in Scripture is a much more unified emphasis on the sovereignty uh, of God and the Lordship of Christ, uh, which means that we engage in His kingdom work every time we exercise salt and light faithfulness in the world. Mm -hmm. So while there's a lot about two-kingdom theology, as it's oftentimes called, that we can appreciate an emphasis on the church and the ordinary means of grace, a realistic appraisal of the fallenness and brokenness of the world, uh, the ability to not freak out when 2020 happens, right? Um, but taking seriously the already but not yet of the, the work of the kingdom. All of those are strengths of two kingdom theology. What they miss, of course, is that great call uh, to be salt and light, to bring the work of the kingdom into manifest reality in the midst of our poor fallen world. It also leads to a kind of laziness or disengagement and unwillingness to boldly call Christians uh, to work for positive change in our communities, uh, to disengage from the important realities of what's happening in our streets and in our communities and with our children, uh, the pro-life movements, the, the, the work of, of freeing people from uh, human trafficking, the, uh, the, the call to reconciliation uh, among the, the, the wealthy and the poor, all, all of those things kind of get lost in the shuffle. Mm -hmm. And uh, we wind up being steeple people instead. Yeah. Um, a desire to make our faith public ought to be at the heart of all that we do all the time. Yeah. A zeal to confront injustice wherever it 
uh, appears and to help the hurting, mm -hmm. uh, the despised, the rejected, and the unloved and the unlovely. Uh, these are things that we are called to, and that's kingdom work. Yeah, and one of the things I think it's helpful as you're, as you're speaking through this, there's a lot of talk right now, obviously, of justice in the world. And Christians, through the scriptures, have to be able to know what is a real injustice and what is real oppression versus what is made up injustice and made up oppression. And, and one of the things that I've noticed in our country is that we have called progress uh, something that's actually very oppressive. And that we've called oppression things that are actually not oppression at all. And we think about things like in, the, in 2020 in the United States of America, we are, we are actually talking about having conversations about drafting women into the military and calling that progress, when in reality it's oppression. Yeah, in the same way that uh, we have fallen into the trap of calling the Renaissance a rebirth, when in fact it was a relapse into mm. pagan antiquity, uh, we tend to talk about things in light of current fads and fashions. And so by redefining things, uh, we concede the whole argument. And so we, we need to be really careful about that, that kind of redefinition uh, because the hard-won freedoms, the liberties, the opportunity for the gospel to go forth, uh, for, for me to go to places like Kurdistan and to work in refugee camps, those hard-won freedoms uh, will be utterly lost mm -hmm. if we concede our culture uh, to the forces of wickedness. Yes. And see how, how this stuff affects the way we live our lives, even with es eschatology. You know, if we don't, if we have a pessimistic understanding of the future and worldview, then obviously there's going to be a, you know, and, and the, the caricature is a, a caricature for a reason. The post-millennialist says, I mean, the, uh, the, the, the dispensational premillennialist is like, hey, it's all going to burn anyways. Why does it matter? And why polish brass on the sinking ship? Why polish brass on a sinking ship? Exactly. But you've been at this in the public square fighting for the, for the, the manifest manifestation of the kingdom of God in our cities, in our world. You've been writing and doing this for, I mean, lecturing, preaching, teaching on this since, I mean, the early eighties, is that correct? Uh, for, for a very long time. So how did you get to that point and say that this is, this is what it looks like in the public sphere? Yes, you know, it's, it's uh, pretty simple. I was pastoring a church. We planted a church uh, just outside of Houston, Texas, and there were needs and, I would read in my Bible, here's what Christians do in the face of poverty or homelessness or brokenness. Uh, here's what the Bible says about the sanctity of life. And I said, we, we don't have a choice. We have to obey. And I, I would look around and th there were others who were, who were saying, wow, that's revolutionary. We've never heard that before. And so I began to write on it and uh, preach on it and teach on it. And we had a radio show and, you know, you just, I, I call it, um, you know, uh, following the footnote trail. We just, mm. uh, we just did the next right thing. It wasn't, yeah. there, there wasn't this huge theological brainstorm where I said, oh, I'm a Kuyperian and yeah. therefore <laughs> right. I, I am, you know, I'm called to exercise this kind of ministry in the world. It was just do the next right thing. Do yeah. what Amen. do what the Bible says. That's so good. That's so good. and it simplifies so many things. Do the next right thing. Do what the Bible says, 
raise your family and, and, the, and children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord and, you know, have children as the world, unfortunately, is, is aborting their children and watch what happens over the generations as we raise up next generations to and the generations beyond that and to love, you know, to love Jesus and to follow him. And, yeah. um, okay. So you love, uh, go ahead. And knowing all along, we don't know neophytes at all times in, in, in every sense of the word. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'll be able to edit this out. My stable is saying discon or is saying unstable. Uh, can you still hear me clearly? I can. Okay, good. Uh, if we have any trouble, I may have to pick my computer up and walk out to where my signal is a little bit more clear in my wife's shop. She's got a sewing shop right in the next room, and that's where the Wi-Fi booster is, so I may have to walk in there. Um, okay, let's switch gears a little bit. You love American history. 2020 has made me more patriotic. I've been doing a lot more reading and, and studying on American history and the uniqueness of the American, I mean, what what is the American way? And Discovered things like Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford. Uh, a modern book that I've discovered was The Doctrine of Lesser Magistrates by Matthew Chuella. Um, and really this year has required me to press into, as I'm leading our congregation and, and our elder team is leading our congregation, press into Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2 and having to figure out when to obey God rather than man, which is always, by the way. Um, but seeing the obligations to both citizens and subjects in Romans 13, and the ob obligation of elected and appointed officials. There's obligations all the way around. And the application of those obligations are different, whether or not you are a citizen or a subject of a society based on its government. We are citizens of a constitutional republic. And would you please tell us what a constitutional republic is, and then what the responsibilities of a citizen in a constitutional republic are? I know there's a lot, but Bring us up to speed. Yeah, there's a whole lot. And I've written uh, probably six or seven books on on that um, very subject. And, it's and I'll put been, show notes and in, in links to some of those books as well. But, uh, you know, essentially what this boils down to is uh, what the Founding Fathers desired was a nation of laws. Where even the highest magistrates were subject to those laws. And those laws were rooted in enduring principles that don't change with the clock or the calendar. So that what is true and what is right and what is good at three o'clock is not suddenly wrong or racist or um, homophobic by five o'clock. Mm -hmm. The idea is that we can rest and rely upon these truths and invest in the long haul. So, so that we invest in our children and in our grandchildren, we invest in infrastructure, we invest in our community, we plant the trees, we, uh, you know, we grow the gardens, we build the businesses uh, for the day that we will not see. Mm -hmm. the, the idea of a constitutional republic is to, uh, that, the, that the founding fathers had was knowing the sinfulness of man, and knowing the inclination of men to vote themselves privileges that they have not earned or are not appropriate. They wanted checks and balances and a set of enduring principles and guidelines that could be counted on across the decades and across the centuries, not just for this particular moment. Hmm. They, they wanted to guard against 
crisis management as the, the, the guide for uh, civil governance. And by, by not understanding that in our day, uh, we fall into the trap that we have in 2020 of allowing crisis management to, uh, to overturn all of our most essential principles. Mm. And, and I'm not talking about masks or no masks or six feet of social distancing or not. What, what I'm talking about is whether or not a decree from a magistrate without any checks and balances, confirmation from legislatures, uh, legislatures or city councils or anything else, wh whether or not those dictates can, can be made, mm -hmm. uh, whether or not we can actually live in a system of martial law. And if martial law is imposed improperly, how do we respond to it? Um, so that, uh, you know, I, I think in 2020, these things have become far more relevant, as mm -hmm. you've said. Yeah. And I think it's vital that Christians inform themselves. I think it's vital that they not only inform themselves, but they engage with our magistrates in a winsome fashion, not, not uh, only in an aggressive fashion, mm -hmm. but in a winsome fashion in order to repair the ruins and rebuild the walls, sometimes with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Yeah. So good. We get a lot of young pastors that listen in and we have, uh, certainly we have some older pastors as well um, uh, who are about your age, 45 or 46, something like that. And, <laughs> um, and so I would love for you to just speak to our pastor and say, what, if, if you got to talk to yourself as a younger man, what advice would you give yourself uh, as a younger man? And this is a really broad question. I realize that, but, but what are some things as it relates to what we're talking about here today, as it relates to ministry in general, what are some things and some counsel that you would give to young pastors? Well, first spend more time in the word and spend way more time in prayer. Mm. Talk to God far more than you talk to your congregation. Mm. Uh, spend time uh, reading Psalms. Uh, know your history. Uh, read three old books for every one new one that you read. Uh, turn off the social media. Turn off mainstream media and focus on the things that were, will endure. Uh, the days are long, but the years are short as Gretchen Rubin has famously asserted. And so, you know, the, uh, the exhortation that we have from the Psalms to number our days is critical. We only have a short amount of time. Let's not waste it. Hmm. I have told our people over and over and over again, don't waste your pandemic. Use this. Use this in your family. Use this in your life. Uh, grow more, read more, study more than you ever have uh, in your life. Uh, that will fit you for the battle. And then go forth with courage. Uh, don't worry about risking everything. You need to risk everything every time you go forth into the public square. Risk it all. Hmm. Go for it. It's, uh, it's time. Amen. Well, I do this with everybody. I wish I could ask. I've got a ton more questions that I could ask you. I didn't even get to talking about uh, more principles behind the why of, of Christian or private 
Christian or homeschool education for children. A lot more that we could talk about, but I want to give you just one last question. And I give this to everybody that I interview and I just set you up. It's kind of like, I just, I, I give you an opportunity to praise God for his grace and just ask the question, Dr. Grant, why do you love Jesus so much? I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Mm. Galatians 2.20. Mm. That, uh, that, that says it all. Mm. Uh, I, I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know faith. I didn't know uh, anything about the Bible. I didn't have a Bible. And by his sovereign grace, he called me. Mm. He redeemed me. He loved me when I was supremely unlovable. And he has continued to love me as I have walked out the rest of my days in a supremely unlovable fashion. And he's grown me. He's given me grace beyond measure. How could I not love Jesus? Mm, amen. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. For those who want to know more about you, your books, your uh, sermons, lectures, where can they find more information about you? And then you, you say that, and then again, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Where can people go to find more about you? GeorgeGrant.net. Okay, simple enough, GeorgeGrant.net. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming to the show. I, I appreciate it, Dr. Grant. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit theshepherdscrook.co. For care and counsel, please call, text, or email to set up a session. You can follow The Shepherd's Crook on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please consider sharing this episode and leaving a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you use. And let me encourage you to remember Jesus Christ.